Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. So the people in my life are in big trouble. A study came out that says loud talkers spread the coronavirus in a big way. Good thing it doesn't come through the microphone. It's the latest episode of This Week in the CLE, the podcast from Cleveland.com. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn with colleagues Chris Wernowski and Laura Johnston. And one of you, I would say, is also a loud talker. I like to say that I have a naturally carrying voice, um, but I have been warned, you know, to use an inside voice, and that was in my 30s. So um, I'm sure Chris Wernowski is very glad that I'm not sitting across from him right now. Exactly. Well, <laughs> and that study was fascinating that loud talkers spew out tons of coronavirus and it hangs in the air for eight minutes. And I'm like, oh man. My whole family news. is screwed, okay? <laughs> if we ever go back to the office, I'm going to have to stay away from you in increments of eight minutes. <laughs> <laughs> or put up plastic shields everywhere. This is the end of our open office. All right, let's get started. How does Ohio propose to keep students safe if schools reopen in the fall, this is probably one of the five most popular story subjects that we write about with regard to the coronavirus. Every time we touch it, it rockets to the top of the charts. And yesterday, reporter Andrew Tobias got a draft of exactly what Ohio was thinking. Laura Johnston, what did we learn? So, yeah, this is just a draft plan, so nothing official, but it's from the Education Working Group. And it's not very specific or enlightening, really. It's about 12 pages. It offers guidelines on how Ohio schools can safely reopen. This group, this task force, is envisioning daily at-home temperature checks, hand sanitizing stations, and face masks required for student and teachers. Wait, 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 wait. Let, let me stop you right there. <laughs> With the at-home? At, at, yeah, the at-home temperature checks. People, my wife's a teacher. People send their students to school knowing they have a fever. So what good <laughs> is an at-home temperature check? Right. That one, that one threw me because... It, it's not that hard to get a, a temperature gun where you just shoot it at the forehead. It's a no touch and you find out what the temperature is. Was there any explanation for why? No, they were like I said, there was very little detail on this. It, it didn't say how any of this would be done. OK, um, what else? Desks would be spaced at least six feet apart. High touch surfaces like door handles and handrails sanitized regularly. Visitors would be limited or prohibited. It's It's really no different than what you'd say for an office, really. What's surprising about this is Andrew is separately uh -huh. working on a story about best practices in other countries, which we've been w looking up. And it's fascinating the things that we have. I think that's going to be published today, right? Uh, yeah, we're working yeah. on that. And we've seen these amazing photos out of China where they have like kind of spray disinfectant going on the kids and they've got the, the lunchrooms with the dividers up and well, uh, and, and cute face shields and, and yes, it's with the littlest kids. Yes. So it's really kind of cool. I think it's going to be published today online. It'll be in the plane dealer on Sunday, but none of that is in this plan. And it's, no. did these people do what we did, which, you know, was to do some YouTube searches? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the Wuhan school seemed to have gone back this week. So this is new, new video. And I, or maybe it was the end of last week. We're, this is new stuff coming out of China, but no, these, and some of them are just, they're not 
Nothing is hard and fast okay, here. Okay, 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 okay. Let's stop. Okay, so so the video might not have been available, but we don't have the brains in Ohio to think of similar things. <laughs> Basic hand washing stations. I mean, it's really cool. The kids come out, they spray their backpack, they spray their shoes. There's an ozone station. They put their head against the, like a clown face to get their temperature taken. I mean, those are all great ideas. Why couldn't we have thought of them instead of saying, hey, parents, Take the temperature at home. Yeah, that'll work. I mean, maybe that will be coming. This is a draft. It's not very specific. There are guidelines. There's nothing really in here about what DeWine said at his press conference a couple weeks ago about going to school two days with a break, you know, for sanitizing and then the cohort of the other two. It just says maybe you don't take field trips. The, the most interesting thing I thought in here was that maybe teachers would loop, meaning they continue teaching the class they have this year for the grade next year because they know these kids best and they can assess how much they retained. The huge issue for that would be teachers getting ready to teach an entirely different grade with different standards. That has nothing to do with the coronavirus. Look, is it just me or is it these work groups that Mike DeWine has put together are not coming up with big ideas? I mean, think about it for restaurants. It's like spacing and, and for, and for um, the barbershops, Wear a mask. I mean, it's like maybe getting the people in the industry to do it wasn't the way to do it. Maybe you needed some radical thinkers because clearly Chris Warnaski brought this up earlier this week. Maybe we should look at best practices evolving elsewhere, but it doesn't sound like anybody in Ohio is doing that. You're just going to the usual suspects and they want to get back to what they were doing like they were doing it. And this is Chris Warnowski. We've spent decades kind of undermining public education anyway. And so, <laughs> sure. but, but think about it. I mean, this is, this is an instance where things like increasing the class sizes of teachers gradually over years and over decades is really going to hurt us. I mean, this is, this is a really good opportunity for people who are in charge of funding our education to really decrease class loads. I mean, there's a legitimate medical reason to decrease teacher class loads right now, and they're probably not going to do it. You know, this is this is exactly like everything else that every other solution that the state has had thus far relies on personal responsibility and assuming that people are going to do the right thing. And you hit the right. nail right on the head at the beginning of this when you say people send their sick kids to school all the time. You know, who, like, what in the hell? Right. <laughs> like, I mean, it's like, it blows my mind that, that, that these districts, the state really needs to give the districts the ability to deal with this when it comes to their doorstep. When these While cutting their doing, budget by $300 right, million. While cutting their budgets. And, and that's it. That's it. We're going to shoestring this. Again, nothing may happen. Kids may be perfectly healthy. But you want to be armed and ready to deal right. with it. And, and the odds are not that the kids are going to be healthy. The odds are there's going to be a lot of this floating around. I do want one other point to be made before we move on. We've been trying to get the documents from these work groups from the governor's office for a couple of weeks. They are pretty much violating the records law left and right and denying it. This is why they should release it. There should be much bigger discussions because this plan that they've put out is is really not that great. And if you get a bunch of other people to look at it, to bring in best practices from elsewhere, there might be a better solution. But because they refuse, even though they keep saying they're going to be transparent, they refuse to provide it. They're depriving us of the discussions on gyms and pools and all of the other 
things that are yet to uh, to reopen. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Is Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish seriously overestimating how much in property taxes he will lose because of COVID-19? He has ordered up a bunch of budget cuts, predicting that, that both sales and property taxes will be down. Sales taxes, you can see immediately. A lot of people are staying home. They're not buying cars. So I get that. But the property taxes, they don't collect those for a while. Chris Warnowski, we had uh, Courtney Astafi do a, a dive on this. What did we find? Well, I, the county is projecting that that people are going to take the stimulus and CARES Act money and the unemployment money that they're getting and, and use it to pay things like you know personal expenses and not necessarily things like property taxes. So um, the county is projecting that they're going to see about a 10% drop in property taxes, which would be kind of unprecedented, even even when it's compared to the the Great Recession that sort of went between 2007 and 2009. Um, and, and I mean, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue that, that the, the county is basically saying, hey, we're not going to get this. And um, so I, I think it's like $271 million was projected to be uh, collected. And, and this would represent maybe a $27 million shortfall of the county's $480 million general fund. What, what's surprising about that is, is when you talk about the Great Recession, you're also talking about the foreclosure crisis. I mean, the Great Recession was based on a housing bubble in which the value of the houses was not there. So, so there was a natural reduction in property tax collections because the houses weren't worth what they had been valued at. That's not happening here. So, uh, you know, and the other thing about property taxes is you, you get them. It, you know, it's not like sales tax where if I spend less money, there's less in the way of sale tax. The property taxes are due. If I don't pay them, they go into delinquency and the county eventually gets it by taking your house and, and selling it. So, but I get that they're projecting not to have the money this year. It just seems like they made this amount up, that they're not really looking back and comparing the Great Recession and the factors that affected housing there to what's happening here. There are a lot of people that are wondering whether, since the government created this economic downturn by shutting down everything when we'll get the economy coming back much more quickly when they reopen everything. I just don't get this. But again, it's sort of like we're all kind of flying blind in the dark here. There's really no historic comparison to this right now. You know, we we can't compare this to like 1917 when the flu epidemic killed millions of people because the economy is set up very differently. Our healthcare system set up very differently. Our social service systems look very different. So, I mean, really, you know, what we have now is a piecemeal of, of every county in the state and states across the country sort of flying blind and kind of what we're dealing with here now is like, is it better to plan for the worst and, and hope that it isn't as bad or? Let's chill on that a little bit. May, you know, is Armin Budish actually being very astutely fiscally conservative because to to do what you just said, let, let's be ready for the worst. And if the worst doesn't happen, we'll have the extra money and we can then restore services. I mean, is this, is this a really smart thing for him to do that other government leaders also should be doing? I mean, maybe, I mean, the cuts are going to be deep. I mean, you know, we added way more people to the unemployment rolls again this morning. So, you know, it's, there's no real guarantee that we're going to be able to pull ourselves out of this economic tailspin, you know, and, and, you know, you got to think about the fact that there's 
uh, some predictions of another spike of this. So if we have to return to our homes again and not leave the house again, you know, we're going to see another, you know, another wave of, of people not having jobs and, and people seeking government relief or stuff. So, you know, very, we have a very different approach going on with our two biggest elected leaders. I mean, Armin Budish is, is going far over to the side of, I'm going to have as balanced a budget as I can, and I'm going to plan for losing lots of money. And then you have Frank Jackson, who really is facing a critical loss of income taxes, not accepting that, believing that the law is on his side, that he can keep all of the income taxes we've all paid, even though we're not, we're, we're not working downtown, and not planning for the loss of that money, which I'm pretty sure they're going to lose that money. Just yeah. a, it's a it's a different thing. And we'll see who's right. So maybe maybe Armin Budish is is making a brilliant move here. Yeah, we um, should talk and, to him. <laughs> yeah, I wish, he, I, I wish he'd be a little more open in his in his discussions. We, we evidently are not getting much from him. It's this week in the CLE. How hard has the coronavirus hit Ohio's casinos? This is an interesting question because through January and February of this year, the casinos were on a record pace, raking in money, especially year over year. But now that they've been closed, their fortunes have changed. Laura, where do they stand? Laura Johnston. They have a huge drop. So the industry had been off to this roaring start in 2020. It hit monthly records in January and March. That was $167.5 million in January, $171.4 million in February. And then revenue dropped as soon as everything closed. They only got $72 million out of March, obviously nothing in April. So they're about $229 million behind for the first four months of 2020. Well, and that hurts the city and the county budgets too, because yeah, they get a significant part of that. Third money. of a third of the money, I think, gets sent to government. Yeah, so they won't be seeing it. And I, you know, the, the casinos are like uh, baseball stadiums and and basketball arenas. How do you allow I them think to they're open? Worse. Right. I mean. I mean, they're enclosed small spaces. They purposely don't have windows or natural light. And you have people in there that stay for hours pulling on slot machines and touching everything. I mean, you I mean, can you go gotta, to a ball game and not touch anything. How do you gamble and not touch anything? Well, will you separate the slot machines by six feet? You can't do that at a blackjack you, table. What about all the know? elderly people that go to casinos? <laughs> That's oh, true. Well, and, buffet, and this is Chris Warnowski, but the buffets and the, you know, oh, I mean, yeah. there's just so much that in there that is like i just i don't even i can't imagine how you would even begin to reopen those things well and does that mean it's the end of las vegas i mean you know that's their whole thing no because they just want to welcome everybody with the coronavirus <laughs> and just let it happen yeah i know i th th this is this is an industry you, you know you keep looking for it laura can't wait to hear about the pools i just don't know how you bring back the casinos unless you put plexiglass shields between everybody but we'll we'll have to see what they do you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why did the East Cleveland prosecutor get slammed by a federal court judge this week? This is another one of the long history of travails in East Cleveland. Chris Warnowski, what's this one about? So this requires just a little bit of background because this involves a, a lawsuit that was filed against the city, the former prosecutor, and a couple of police officers related to the conviction of three men uh, Larice Glover, Eugene Johnson, and Derek Wheat, who were convicted of murder in 1995 when they were teenagers. And they were released in 2015 after a witness recanted their testimony. And the judge found that the officers and the prosecutor, assistant prosecutor, uh, Carmen uh, Marino, suppressed evidence 
to support their innocence. And this has been a long, like there's a long ongoing lawsuit and, and there we're kind of in the phase now where we're sort of deciding who pays what in this lawsuit. And they were awarded $15 million for wrongful imprisonment. And, and there's this sort of back and forth going on over whether the individual officers and one of them who has passed away will have to pay or if the, the city is on the hook for this money. And what happened was, is the prosecutor, uh, Willa Hemmons, has been representing both the police officers and the city, which the judge has said was in the past is a conflict and she couldn't do that. This part is a little bit confusing. So, so explain why it's a conflict for her to represent the officers and the city. Well, in a lot of cases, in a lot of these cases, and and we have more than our share of them here. In most cases, the officers are, are generally required to have their own counsel. And, and, and usually in, in these cases, the, the, the police union has, has people who do, who do that. And if there's more than one officer, they generally find somebody who isn't the union attorney to come in and represent any other officers that might be a party yeah, to the lawsuit. But, but the conflict, though, is the city, in trying to get out of paying this, is partially putting the onus on the officers. The officers, yeah. in yeah. trying to get out of paying this, is saying the city should pay. So they're kind of at odds. And yet this attorney, this prosecutor, is trying to represent both when they have disparate interests. Right. And and so what happened now is that the the judge had to come back and basically say, like, you're still doing this. I don't know why you're doing this. And the judge basically said, you can't represent the officers anymore. Hemmons is still going to be representing the city. But yeah, so in, in her it capacity. It was brutal, though, man. I mean, the, yeah. the judge was not kind in his wording. In my experience, federal judges are get very prickly when you don't listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll leave that there. It's this week in the CLE. Is it legal for the state of Ohio to take over a failing school district? Ohio has had a law in the books for a while where if schools have bad grades for enough years in a row, the state sends in somebody to take them over. We've had it in Cuyahoga County. We've had it elsewhere. Uh, And this week, the Supreme Court weighed in on whether that is legal and proper. Chris Ranowski, what is the ruling? The ruling is uh, it is definitely legal and proper, according to Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor, who penned the court's lead opinion on this. Basically, this was related to a lawsuit that was filed by the Youngstown School District, but it does impact places like East Cleveland. And it was a Cleveland Metropolitan School District, too, I think at one point that is at risk of having a takeover from the state. But what the court found was that it's not unconstitutional for the state to come in and take over the the administration of these failing school districts. Youngstown was trying to argue, they were arguing the general principle of it because of the the way the constitution's written, but they were also arguing that the way it was done, there were some technicalities and the Supreme Court basically rejected it all. They just said, nope, they did it properly and they have the power to do this. Right. This, I mean, the suit said that the the tactics used to hurry the bill, which were secretly worked on in advance by Republican lawmakers and then Governor John Kasich violated the Constitution's provision that every bill shall be considered by each house on three different days, et cetera, et cetera. But O'Connor in, in her decision said that the state constitution only directs that voters can decide how a school board can be set up 
and does not require that any specific power or authority be vested in the school board. So it gets down into some real technical stuff, but essentially she invalidated the argument in the, in the suit that was done by the district and supported by a number of teacher school staff and labor unions. What's interesting is, is since this all began, the legislature has passed a bill where they've got a moratorium on this. I think many of the legislators have realized <laughs> taking over these schools hasn't made them any better, uh, and they're all looking for a better solution. But at least they know they have the power to do it if they wish. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Just how bipartisan are Ohio U.S. Senator Rob Portman and Congressman Jim Jordan. There's a group that rates people on these matters, and the Jim Jordan rating may not be a surprise to anybody that's been following national politics, but the Rob Portman one is a bit of a surprise. Laura Johnston, what do we know? So Rob Portman is the fourth most bipartisan member of the U.S. Senate during 2019, and Champaign County GOP Representative Jim Jordan, fourth from the bottom out of the 437 House of Representative members. And these are from the nonpartisan Luger Center and the Georgetown University McCourt School of Public Policy. What was surprising to me about this is, you know, the editorial board has has slapped Portman around on occasion because he is almost a blind supporter of President Donald Trump. When when there are times we we look to him to stand up for Ohioans. So the fact that he is so fast to work across the, the lines, he's often worked with Sherrod Brown. He has a good mm-hmm. relationship and he's a he's a reasonable guy whenever you have a conversation with him. I just didn't realize he'd be that high up on the list, given how staunch a supporter he is of the president. No, it was surprising. Jordan, of course, was not. I, I'm sure he wished he were the very bottom. <laughs> right. He's probably not. <laughs> Three mad, guys but... <laughs> worked, worked less with other people. The main Republican, Susan Collins, was the most bipartisan legislator uh, in the Senate, which is probably not a surprise. Um, So we have a list online. Sabrina Eaton has it of every House member in our delegation and where they stood on everything. Uh, It's good for for Portman to be doing that. You know, clearly this country is broken into partisan politics in a horrible way. And the fact that Ohio has a senator that's working that hard, it's a good sign. So kudos Mm -hmm. to him. and, And like you said, no surprise with Mr. Jordan. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is the Cleveland Metro Park Zoo going to open for drive through visitors? This one is a story we published yesterday. Kind of boggles my mind. I don't quite see how this can work. But Laura Johnston, apparently it's something they are seriously considering. Yeah, it is mind boggling for me too. And we have very few details on this. I mean, other than car and zoo and curbside refreshments, like that's the most de- definite thing we got out of the Metro Parks on this. They sent an email to uh, members of their community panel and they said, would you be interested in a drive through zoo? And they na- gave a couple of different names that it could be called that like a wild ride or parade at the zoo. But they didn't answer. And what is the burning question here is, are we just talking driving through the zoo parking lot and they're going to bring animals out to greet your car? Or are we talking somehow you're going to be able to either get in a tram or get your car, like maybe remove the barriers for the entranceway and actually drive through the zoo? Because those asphalt paths are very wide. I mean, they have yeah. a tram that drives on them all the time. So I don't know what they're talking about. Well, I mean, the tram would violate the the distancing. So I don't think that's it. Unless they're and, like individual golf carts per family. I don't but, know. But if you think, yeah, but even so, I mean, you're, well, and the thing said that you couldn't get out of your car. Right. I mean, look, look, let's take a couple of, of examples. 
that wolf exhibit, which is great. If you're in the in the the asphalt path, you're not going to see wolves. I mean, no, they're way up in the back. That so then building. you drive up to where the big cats are, right? I mean, they're you know, all inside a building. Yeah, I mean, you're <laughs> not. You're. It, this isn't like driving through a safari park where the animals are walking around your vehicle. You know, they're in pens, and you you know, it's. And maybe they arm everybody with a, a set of good binoculars because I just what's the what's... I don't know. I mean, the the one thing I'll got to give the Metro Parks is they are trying to come up with something, you know, unlike just shutting down. They are thinking innovatively, even though we don't get it yet. They have to be hurting for money. They've canceled all their events and camps. They are not making money from rental fees and program. They've had to lay off or furlough or cut the pay of like 650 employees. So I, I'm glad that they're trying to think of a way that they could interact with the public. I just uh, don't understand how it's going to work. This is this is Chris Warnowski. I Maybe one solution is to take all the big cats and just release them in a different metro park and <laughs> and let us risk it you know let them have a chance for a change <laughs> i yeah look i i you know i agree with you laura I, they're they're trying that's a that's a good sign and because of their design they might be able to do it you couldn't i don't think you could pull off that kind of drive-through thing at the akron zoo for instance it's much tighter and no, so but i think you brought it up yesterday like that's a place where you think that you could walk around and be six feet from people like what right that's why the, can't we walk i mean we were talking about the rock hall and you know which which is going to limit the flow and make sure people are separate that's a lot easier to do with the zoo if you limit the number of people do a reservation system um and and look come on the other thing is when you're when you're watching the animals you know, having your car running and the air conditioner on, that's not really what, what you're doing. Maybe it's the golf carts. I, you know, maybe they'll get a big army but, of golf carts, and, but it's still the distance. You're not going to be able to see the damn animals. But when you're out there, I mean, that's the thing. Is it like when you're walking around between exhibits? Yeah, you have a lot of space between people. But the problem is, is when you get to those exhibits, everybody congregates to gawk at the animals. So you know, you know, people are putting their faces up against the plexiglass. I mean, there's a lot of things that, you know, while it's open air, there there are some problem areas where people congregate out there. So you well, know, you're it, right. it would be different. Right. And getting in and out of the buildings that they have, those aren't made for social distancing. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, I guess if you had proctors, I don't know. I, I just, the, the drive police, through. Though, it's so big, you know, you'd have to have somebody standing at every, every exhibit. I just don't get the drive through. I mean, I, I've been to the zoo enough where I, you know, even in the elephant exhibit, that would be hard. And they're really big. So, okay, that's it for this week in the CLE. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Chris. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode. Mm-hmm.